Hi, this is Chad. I'm so glad to be part of your journey towards product mastery so you can better develop products customers love. As a product person, I expect you really enjoy shaping the direction of a product, especially one that provides you value. That's why I'm inviting you to be a founding member of a brand new product I'm launching, the Product Mastery Now community. Too many of us have very little interaction with product professionals in your own organization and at other companies. We need to be developing our professional network and learning with and from other product managers and leaders. If you're neglecting your learning, you're jeopardizing your ability to move towards product mastery and not getting better at developing products customers love. Instead, become a founding member of the community. Not only will you influence its direction while getting value from the community, you'll join for the lowest price that will ever be offered. Applications to join the community will close soon. I'd like for you to get the benefits of being a founding member. Learn more about the community at productmasterynow.com slash community. One more time, that's productmasterynow.com slash community. Now, today we're talking about being a serial innovator and how that can greatly improve the innovation results of an organization. Joining us is Dr. Abby Griffin. She holds the Royal L. Garf Presidential Chair in Marketing at the David Eccles School of Business at the University of Utah. She began her career in chemical engineering at Polaroid, went on to product commercialization at Corning Glass, and later became a university professor after earning her PhD from MIT. Also with us is Carmel Dimner. She's a principal and co-owner at Applied Marketing Science, where she has helped dozens of companies uncover critical customer insights to improve products, services, and customer experiences. Before moving to consulting, she was in brand management at Unilever, working with the Dove brand. And if Applied Marketing Science sounds familiar, maybe, it could be because of a very popular interview all the way back in episode 71 with Jerry Katz, also of Applied Marketing Science, who detailed the steps for conducting voice of the customer research, which, by the way, is based in part on research Abby did several years ago. Abby and Carmel, with the help of a few others, have created a public workshop titled Product Innovation Masterclass, How to Become a Serial Innovator. See the connection with our topic here? If you find the discussion helpful in this episode, check out this masterclass. It's being offered virtually from November 1st to 3rd, And also, they're providing listeners to this podcast a 400 discount for the masterclass. Carmel will share later how to register for the course, and the specific link is going to be in the written show notes for you. So to make it really easy, we'll put that link in there. To get the 400 discount, use the discount code PRODUCTMASTERYNOW. That's all one word, no spaces, case doesn't matter, PRODUCTMASTERYNOW. And speaking of the show notes, if you want that detailed written summary of everything that we discuss, along with that one-page action guide we always create, to help you put into action concepts that Abby and Carmel will share with us, simply go to productmasterynow.com slash 405. Abby and Carmel, thanks so much for being with us today. Oh, thank you for having us. It's a delight to be here. Thank you, Chad. Pleasure to be here. I, I'm so much looking forward to this. The, I, we're going to focus on aspects of the serial innovation book that you wrote, Abby. But first, I want to set this up a little bit, right? Because you've contributed in so many important ways to our discipline here of innovation management and product management. You have this highly cited paper, Voice of the Customer, written by John Hauser, that really set the process and standards for understanding what customers want. You've also co-authored numerous other research articles. You were the editor of the highly respected Journal of Product Innovation Management for five years. And this popular book that we'll get into more, Serial Innovation, How Individuals Create and Deliver Breakthrough Innovation in Mature Firms. And when I read that when it came out, I was so happy to get my hands on it and recommended it to many people. 
And I have this quick story to tell you. So back in 2015, I did an interview with Steve Perez. That's back in the archives of the podcast here. He's at Caterpillar or was then a Caterpillar. And he was describing the work he did. And I blurted out in the middle of our discussion, you're a serial innovator, right? And I told him about your book and said, you need to get your hands on this book because it will help frame the work that you're doing. And he responded that he already had and that him and his manager went to a workshop. And I don't know, Abby, if you did it or if one of your co-authors did it, but about the book. And at one point during this workshop, his manager leans over to him. And I think at this point, he had been working at Caterpillar as an innovator like for 27 years. And his manager leans over to him and says, Steve, I finally understand what to call you. You're a serial innovator, right? <laughs> now now I, I have this connection. Can you define what serial innovator is for us? Absolutely. The, the formal definition is that serial innovators are individuals at large, mature companies who are associated with one after another, after another radical innovation, commercial success. And I use a couple of those modifiers very, very particularly. It's large, mature companies. So it's not people like Steve Jobs who are at the top of a company and who can say, thou shalt do this. These are individuals who work in middle management. So not only do they have to figure out what, what individuals want, they have to also figure out how do I make that work in the context of the corporate environment that my company has imposed on me because they can't they can't force something to happen so they can't they have to manage the politics they have to manage the process that they use and make it fit into the company's processes that are already in place in addition to doing all of that upfront work that's the main point yeah. And managing the, the politics is not trivial. As organizations scale, as they grow, right? So the focus here is large, mature companies. We tend to see innovation in some sense kind of get pushed out from the organization. It can become more challenging. I don't know what you've seen in your, your experience or in the research that you've done. Oh, in the actually, this is interesting because in the PDMA best practices research, which we are on a different research team, just finishing writing up and submitting to Journal of Product Innovation Management. This is the fifth round of those best practice studies. One of the things that we have have found is that just to stay you know ahead or just to say stay equal, you have to keep evolving things, and you know that's that's very difficult to do. We have had trouble getting U.S. companies to even participate this time in the best practices research. And our hypothesis is because that they no longer have as much innovation internally because this whole push toward open innovation has decimated their internal innovation capabilities. It has not helped in the long run. It has taken innovation out of the corporation. And it's not that this is this research isn't about entrepreneurs either, because entrepreneurs can gather, you know, can do what they want to do as well. So it's not about people at the top of a large corporation. It's not about entrepreneurs who are at a startup. It's about people who are already in companies that have had innovation for a long period of time. And we're trying to keep them particularly radical innovation. So it's kind of the opposite of what Christensen says. So Christensen, with, with his innovation theory, says, look, big companies can't do this. And what we found is that, yeah, big companies can do it. And there are a couple of different ways. Gina O'Connor's research has focused on a technology-driven approach for doing radical innovation in large, mature companies. This one, I call it a people approach. 
It's it's driven by people, but it's really people who want to solve unbelievable product problems that people have. Mm-hmm. And so my people, my innovators have started from a, a course of there's a problem out there and you know we need to understand that problem in order to solve it. And so they start from what I call a problem-driven approach. Gina's people start from a, a technology-driven approach. And Christensen's people start really from a market segmentation or cost-driven approach because he says, oh, the big guys, these products are too much and they're too costly. And so we're going to go with a simplification approach. And big companies can't do that. It has to be a startup. It has to be outside of the mature company. Mm-hmm. So in reality, what you've got, if you look across all those three pieces of research, is the three different ways that companies, large mature companies, can actually organize and execute radical innovation. Excellent. That gives us a nice framework to think about. I, I tend to be connected to that you know, social aspect of, you know, we, we see people having problems and, and how for product innovation, how do we go about addressing those problems? And as serial innovators, you know, there are these people that are wired inside organizations to identify problems, want to address them. Um, and then they run up against the organizational processes. I'm curious, like in the case of Steve Perez, that really found some comfort through your book. He felt like he had been hitting his head against the political forces of Caterpillar over the years and just kept trying, right? Did it give up? A lot of people would give up and go someplace else where innovation might be easier to get through the political system. And not that Caterpillar is innovative, but they're a large organization. Have you seen other results like that because of your Sarah Innovators book, people saying, thank you for this. And this is what it meant to me. Absolutely. And those emails when they come in are just wonderful because the research has really changed some people's lives. Oh my gosh, this is me. Now I know. And now I can do it better. But the other part that you said about it was Perez's manager, who was also with him, who Mm -hmm. leaned over to him and said, now I know what to call you. That has been equally important. Yeah, This is a piece of research that provides managers of people who are these strange creatures with the ability to understand how to better manage them. And a lot of the people who are serial innovators in large companies have actually succeeded because they found someone who gets it who lets them go away at the front end of innovation and be quiet for six months, eight months, which is highly unusual. They protect them a bit and they provide some of the political membrane, if you want, around them so that they're they're protected and they can do the background work that they need to do to really understand a problem in enormous detail. Because that's what the serial innovators do. That's a piece of what they do that's very different, is they take a long time to truly understand all of the root causes of what the problem is and all the details of what that means for how you want to solve that problem best. So we get these emails from serial innovators. We get these emails from their managers sometimes. But a lot of them just say, you know, look, now I know how to tell my manager how to manage me better. The people who hate the research are people in HR because, you know, the serial innovators don't fit into any of their normal boxes and they just like to get rid of. And, you know, now we've got managers in addition to serial innovators who are going to HR and going, no, no, no. Look, I've got results from this person. Yeah, we're going to have to manage them differently. What do you mean we manage them differently? We don't manage people differently. And so it's there's a lot of pushback from HR. But ultimately, you know, we've we've been able to change 
how some research directors, so think at the corporate level, it's made changes at the corporate level. Not everyone should be a serial innovator. Not everyone needs right. to be a serial innovator. Firms can't take that many of them. We found that in doing a, a more empirical study, somewhere between two out of 100 of your R&D people and two out of 500. And the bigger the organization, the fewer of these you're probably going to have. Okay, that, that's per hundred people in your R and D in your R and D group. It also means that there are you know a little bit of a needle in a haystack that there are people that we do need to seek out and find. As you're talking about that, I was reflecting on I had this great management mentor in an organization years ago, and he said, you know, Chad, my perspective, management is all about taking our C players, helping them to become B players, taking the B players, helping them to become the A players taking the A players and just amplifying them, right? And then someone like you, we just let run. And I didn't really know what that meant at the time, right? I'm like, what do you mean someone like me? Why do I fit in that scheme there somewhere? But apparently I was closer on that two out of 100 approach because I just saw things differently, right? And was looking for problems to solve and how we can add value along the way. So that, that's a good perspective. We should be looking for these people and then helping them as well, protecting them some and giving them some cover. You've extended this into innovation teams and you know helping the organization kind of recognize how do I think, you know, make better use of these serial innovators and extend that to the team as well. Can you talk about serial innovation teams a bit? Sure. I can talk about serial innovator teams a little bit. If you think about the major components, when you're talking about radical innovation, there are people who need to invent. There are people who need to get projects politically accepted in the organization. And then there are people who need to implement. So there are three major sets of tasks. And in most organizations, those are done very separately. And we do the R&D. We have an R&D inventor. He does his, he or she does his thing. Then, you know, someone figures out how to get the project accepted into the organization's formal product development process when most of the invention is done. And then you've got people who are project managers, typically. So the serial innovator is someone who has all of those skills. So if you've got someone who's not quite fully up to speed in all of those different kinds of areas, that's the kind of, those are the kind of capabilities that you need to supplement him or her with on a team that you're trying to do to support them. So they're going to need some people who are technical in nature, who can do some of the details of the inventing that the serial innovator may not be able to do. Most of these individuals are politically capable, but you need a manager who is someone who's going to be the liaison with upper management and other shareholders and stakeholders, because frequently these are large projects, not always. And then it helps to have a detail-oriented project manager who also can help really execute the implementation because of all of the different tasks that are associated with radical innovation. That seems to be the one that the serial innovator finds least enjoyable. And when you don't enjoy doing something, you're never going to be as good as when you're really passionate about it. So those are the kinds of things that you want to pull together across, across the team. And you want to have people who think differently. When you're talking about most serial innovators will have multiple different kinds of technical backgrounds. As a matter of fact, we call them M and sometimes or PI and sometimes even M capability people. Mm-hmm. And so by that, we mean instead of having one, te- one leg of deep technological expertise, a T person, they have 
two or even three legs of deep technological expertise. If they don't have those legs, then you need to bring in individuals with other technical domains that they're very good with and bring them together so they can can work work jointly. And they may not be an innovator. They may be someone who is only comfortable in the laboratory and inventor and therefore doesn't want to get out of the lab. But Love still likes interacting with the serial innovator because between the two of them, they pique their intellectual curiosity and keep it spiked. Yeah, the serial innovator is bringing problems. Inventor also enjoys solving problems and and finding actual ways to execute on that. You know, one thing I've seen in innovation is it's really helpful to have cross disciplines interacting because when we you know see how something works in one domain and we apply that in a new domain, that's often breakthrough of some sense. Is that why the Pi the M type people are helpful when they have expertise in, in more than one area? Typically, yes. We'll be back to the discussion in just a minute. If you're not in a community with other product professionals, you're limiting your potential. Now is the time to change that. After talking with hundreds of product managers about their journey and how they grew in their careers, three elements stand out. Frameworks and tools, structured learning, and peer learning. To bring all three of these together, the Product Mastery Now community is opening for the first time. The community will help you accelerate your product mastery journey. Now, you listen to this podcast because you find value in it, and the community will amplify that many times over. Further, joining during the Founders launch, you being a founding member of the community guarantees that you'll receive the lowest price the community is ever going to be available for. You'll get training and frameworks and tools, live Q&A with our podcast guests, advice from other community members, and much more. Find out more and apply to be a member at productmasterynow.com community. One more time, that's productmasterynow.com slash community. Virtually all of the innovators that we've interviewed, and there are, there are close to 60 of them across the entire number of years of the project, start off with one technical domain. And, and every innovator we've ever interviewed has started off with a technical background. They, it's easier to go out and get the business knowledge that you need and the political knowledge than you need than it is to acquire the technical expertise that you need to solve uh, wicked hard problems. And so they start off with one. And typically that's their undergraduate and or graduate schooling. And then they'll get in the firm and they'll end up picking up, in some cases, other insights into different technical domains. They may start out in biology. They'll, they may get assigned to a different technical product area, pick up a little bit of that. But they're also really great networkers. And this is, I think, the difference between a person who's at the top of an organization or an entrepreneur and a person who is a serial innovator in the middle of a large, mature organization is these individuals know they can't do everything themselves. They have to be kind enough, nice enough to be able to get other people to work with them. They have no authority. So they have to use their charm and their charisma to be able to bring other people with the needed skills onto the project whenever they want them. There's some other models out there about innovation teams. Gosh, I'm running a blank on who Adio, one of the founders, one of the brothers wrote the, the I think the 10 faces of innovation or something like that. And Tom the, Kelly. Tom, thank you. And there's the A to F model that is written by a great author that I don't remember the name. Um, that talk about just the, these different kind of roles. And I, I, you know, like the facilitator who can kind of get things moving, the executor, the person that finds resources. It sounds like in the roles that you laid out, you know, we have the technical person to accomplish things, the manager to help 
uh, break through barriers and help with resources and help kind of protect the team in some sense. The serial innovator who might be understanding the problem and the CEO has the motivation to try to push things forward. Are there other roles in there that you have found that you know are really necessary or is that kind of the core that makes this all work? I think that's the core. But one of the other things we found is that when you can include people with, with ne- what we call neural diversity. Hmm. So let me give an example. I think spatial. And John Hauser, my thesis advisor, thinks in equations. Oh, my gosh. And so you would think, OK, I'm working for him. I have to learn how to think in equations. What we would do when we were solving some of the problems for how to how to do the research on voice of the customer is we would sit down next to each other and I would draw a picture. And John would write an equation. I'd look at the equation and go, Matt, that's not quite right. I'd draw a different picture. He'd write a different equation. And finally, between the two of us, each speaking our own different language, we would come up with, oh, it's really, we need to model it this way because that way, this model equation will give us this kind of a picture and this is the picture that it's going to look like. And so I couldn't have come up with that on my own. Neither could John. But between the two of us, because I thought spatially and he thinks in equations, that was very important. Actually, the same is true of the serial innovator research in total. My PhD is in business and management of technology. Ray Price's PhD is in organizational behavior. And Bruce Vojak is an engineer. He is an electrical engineer, and we think differently. And so sometimes when we came together in our teams, it was very frustrating because we spoke different languages. But And sometimes I, could, I had no idea where Bruce was coming from because he just he thought differently. He thought like mm-hmm. an engineer, and I now thought like a business person. But in the long run, you know, each of us... It, that we came up with one plus one plus one equaled about five or six. I could never have done the serial innovator research without the orientation and the different knowledge backgrounds that Ray and Bruce added into my business and management of technology and chemical engineering background. And so it's, you, you know, sometimes you can force those skills together and sometimes, you know, it just happens serendipitously. I think we can do in companies a better job of managing to make sure we get you know, someone who thinks a bit spatially, mm-hmm. someone who thinks a bit equationally, numerically, and don't forget to bring in bring in the, the different kinds of technical backgrounds. Now, it's going to create sparks at time. You know, there were times when each of us, Ray, Bruce, and I were totally frustrated with the other people. And you just have to learn how to how to overcome them. So someone who can help facilitate that, you know, those little rough patches is also very useful. Okay. But it's an inwardly team focused, not an outwardly team facilitator. Yeah. And having these very different experiences and very different perspectives. Neural diversity is a new term in that context to me. I don't know if that's yours or if that comes from somewhere else. Carmel knows more about that than I do. Okay, Carmel. And I'm so sorry. I've been wanting certainly to bring you into the discussion too. And we'll talk about the connection here with AMS more too. Where does that come from, That this neural diversity aspect? Sure. So researchers have looked at a lot of different ways to think about thinkers, and they've looked at how do you create neurodiverse teams. There are at least eight different kinds of thinkers that have been identified, linear, spatial, connection thinkers, people who are good at bringing things together, holistic thinkers who look at the big picture, critical 
thinkers, concrete thinkers, convergent thinkers, and divergent thinkers. And people usually play one role. Sometimes they they might think in more than one way, but all of those holistically bring the team together and create this idea of neurodiverse teams. Okay. It's another expression of different kind of roles on the team in some sense, right? They have these different ways of thinking. Like like an earlier version of this might be the, the six hats model, which is, you know, how to think about a problem in different ways, you know, the devil's advocate and the, the different roles that you might just think through those lenses. If you look through the personality chapter of the Serial Innovators book, you'll see that we talk about they they think holistically. Mm-hmm. They actually think across a number of those eight different kinds of neural diversities. And so what you may want to do is test the person or think about how to have the person, you know, understand who is a serial innovator, you know, which way they think and supplement on the other different dimensions that they seem to be weaker on. Yeah, I, I really appreciate having the you know different ways of thinking on a team. I come to this from a different just direction, right? Which is, I remember this experience when I was learning about MBTI, the Myers-Briggs type indicator. Turned out, as I was going through this, it was Fs and Ps and Ns of people were, and if you don't know Myers-Briggs, it doesn't matter, right? But the character temperament profiles that were just personally really annoying to me, right? And uh, I did this in a six-day six workshop with Center for Creative Leadership, and we would always be doing these team environments on everything. And there were a couple of people that really stood out to me as super annoying. And then we find out that, you know, what their type is. And I'm more of the introvert engineer. I'm the ISTJ. And it was after this experience that I then sought out these people, right? It's like, oh, you're an F, you're P, you're an N. Please be part of part of the team I'm on because you help us think differently. I, I recognized these people, like you said, Abby, there were times that, you know, you would be at each other and not agree. And, you know, I would find these people really annoying. And then I recognized wow, they make our work so much better because they come at it from a different perspective. Oh, great. I'm an N. Fantastic. We, we got to do something together, Abby. Great. <laughs> but our, okay. we have, we've also done some testing of Myers-Briggs on our serial innovators. And in general, they tend to be introverts. Interesting. I'm sure there's a few ISTJs that are, I hope. Everyone's type is the best type for them. That's great. Okay. So we, we've been through this a little bit on the serial innovator type the importance of creating serial innovation teams to really move forward and optimize, uh, I think, innovation. And I thought it was interesting before, you know, on the more recent research that you've been doing through PDMA and the, that best practices study, which, by the way, is a great contribution to our work every every few years. PDMA does the study. And hopefully you or maybe someone else on that team, we can get back together and do an episode on sharing some of the key results of that and why that study exists. Um, I think it's a very valuable contribution that PDMA provides. But recognizing that the larger organizations did not want to participate as much, maybe in part because innovation isn't inside their walls as much. This issue of being able to build innovation teams, serial innovation teams, is becoming all that much more critical, right? It's really important that our large organizations don't slow down their innovation and in some sense get left behind in the world economy. So I'm really glad we could talk about this. As listeners know, we also like an innovation quote around here, and we ask our guests to bring an innovation quote and kind of describe what that means to them. Abby, I'll ask ask you for one, and uh, looking forward to hearing what you have for us. Product development and the devil are in the details. It's easy to understand general needs. I need to be able to take food from home and, you know, store it until I'm ready to eat it later. But really getting at successful products means understanding all of the details. 
And most companies, market research processes and product development processes really don't support taking the time to delve into understanding all the details of all of the issues of the problem. And that is probably the most material difference between the serial innovators that we've researched who are extremely successful and who are responsible for billions and billions of dollars of revenue in corporations versus other product development teams that are just, you know, go off and and make something and, and don't focus on getting the details right. Mm-hmm. If you remember way back 30, 40 years ago, Compaq had, you know, the 37 pounder, but they mit of, of laptop, the, the luggable, but right. they missed the 14 pounder. And, you know, what they did was if they hadn't had a six pound laptop, they would have gone out of business. And what they did was they sent teams of people around to study how people use laptops in all kinds of different contexts to understand the details of what using a laptop meant on a plane, on a plane at night, in a hotel room, in a hotel lobby, in all of the places that you might use it so that they could get all of the all of the details absolutely correct. The one difference between the Palm Pilot and the Apple Newton was that the Palm Pilot team, the original team, thought about specifically, how do you carry this thing? And men like you have a pocket on their shirt and they right. want to figure out, they want to be able to put it in that pocket because they don't want to sit on it. And so they went around and they studied which shirt maker has the smallest pockets because we have to have this thing fit into every single pocket. And, and they found out Brooks Brothers has the smallest pocket. It turns out there is an inverse relationship between the cost of the shirt and the size of the pocket. The cheaper the shirt, a Walmart shirt, the larger the pocket. Mm-hmm. The more expensive the shirt, the smaller the pocket. So it's details like these that end up helping get the really all of the details exactly the way people want them. Because if you don't, people are not going to buy the product. You got to get into the weeds to understand the details. Thank you so much for sharing that quote. Really appreciate hearing how you talked about that as well. I do want to just wrap up a little bit about why Abby and Applied Marketing Sciences is together. Carmel at Applied Marketing Sciences, you know, you've helped so many different companies figure out, you know, what customers want in a sense and help them improve their innovation capabilities. How do you think companies can make the best use of Abby's work and that her colleagues have done here about these serial innovation teams, about structuring innovation teams? When we talk to clients about their projects, typically what they talk to us about is their form or their formal roles on the team, their title. What is my role within the organization? And I think what Abby's work really brings to the forefront is there are formal roles, but there are also informal roles. There's all those personality traits, the roles that people can play on the team based on those personalities that are not often part of those discussions. And I think what we can do with our clients going forward is really helping them to understand not just the formal roles by virtue of title on the team, but the roles that people can play in the execution of the project that that speak to those softer skills, like the, the personality traits and the different ways of thinking that are so critical to project success. I think it helps a lot, kind of like my experience with MBTI, to think about the the work that needs to get done and the kind of people that have inherent strengths 
at getting that work done, right? And and letting people play to their strengths and recognizing that if we're missing some critical piece as before, Abby, well, I guess Carvel, you were telling us about the details of the neurodiversity, that, that these are pieces that need to be there to have a team that really does excel in innovation. Absolutely. And I think those frameworks, whichever framework a company chooses to use, helps open those conversations. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's great to look at a few different frameworks and see what's going to be really a motivating framework for the team. Oh, I think this way. I think that way. You think that way. Okay, what is missing from our team? And that's really the start of the conversation. So I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all framework when it comes to establishing this kind of diversity on the team, but we need to find a framework that the team can rally behind and that works for that specific team to start those discussions. And so for finding those frameworks, for discovering these deeper, more meaningful roles for people that have innovation teams they want to see excel better, right? For both of you, Abby and Kamal, how can people find out more about, you know, becoming a con- good contributing member to a serial innovation team? How can they learn more about forming a team and be successful with that? Absolutely. Applied Marketing Science will be hosting a masterclass called Product Innovation Masterclass, How to Become a Serial Innovator. It's a virtual class in this day and age makes it easy for people to participate. And that will be between November 1st and November 3rd. It's going to be co-taught by Abby and my colleagues, John Mitchell and Kristen Corrigan at AMS. And then on November 13th at the PDMA conference in Orlando, Florida, there is a short course on on, uh, serial innovators and becoming serial innovators that is also available. So come to the PDMA conference, attend the Sunday morning workshop. Excellent. I might be there and haven't finalized plans yet, but that would be great to be able to participate in that at the PDMA conference. And the virtual class, obviously virtual November one to three. How can people find out? I, I know the conference is easy enough, pdma.org. How can people find out more about that virtual class though? If you go to ams-inc.com, you will be able to look at our public workshops and it is listed there. There are all of the course details and overview of the course topics, as well as a link to register for the course. Fantastic. And I will track down the specific link for the masterclass in serial innovation teams and have that in the show notes, along with the link to the PDMA conference information as well. And we'll put that in the show notes. It's been a great pleasure talking with both of you. Abby, I've been a big fan of your work and really appreciate the contributions you have made to the innovation space. Carmel, I have a exceptionally positive impression of what AMS does, frankly, largely because of my long-term relationship with Jerry Katz and the work that I've seen your group do to help people understand problems that customers actually have and how can we do a better job of solving those. So I really appreciate both of you being part of the podcast today. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you, Chad. And listeners, again, if you want to find the written notes of everything we talked about, that's a great way to share it with colleagues too, to just send them the summary of what we discussed, as well as that one-page action guide to immediately put into action the key takeaways. You will find those at productmasterynow.com slash 405. Everyone, keep innovating. Thank you for listening to Product Mastery Now, where product leaders and managers gain product mastery through practical knowledge, influence, and confidence. By listening, you are becoming a product master, creating products customers love. Find additional resources at productmasterynow.com. Keep innovating. Hello. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.